welcome to the Retail Smarts Podcast. I'm your host, Dominique Lamb. Welcome back to our listeners. Today is an incredibly important day. It's International Women's Day and we have an incredibly amazing guest that I'm so excited about speaking to. Um, Today with us, we have Senator Sarah Hanson-Young, who's joined us from Adelaide. She's a very, very busy woman um, and we are just so excited to have you on our Retail Smarts podcast. Well, thanks for having me, Dominic. It's just so wonderful to be here. And um, I think on a day like this, International Women's Day, where you know, I'm in the business of social change and I tell you what, the real change makers out there are women um, and uh, whether it's the women who work in the retail sector or the women who support the retail sector, it is women across our lives and our communities that are really the ones with um, the influence and power to, to make this world the way we want it to be. So I'm really keen to get into some of that um, over this chat. I have been a big fan of yours for some time um, and have been watching kind of your just emergence because, I mean, you are doing some amazing things. And I hear that you grew up in a regional town. So maybe we'll start back where it all began. I mean, what was it like growing up in a regional town? Yeah, I grew up in a small country town in country Victoria, actually. And, you know, went to the local high school there. Um, I grew up um, at a time where the forest debate was really um, heated in Victoria. Um, the dairy industry was kind of um, very prominent. And they were the two industries in town. There was the the, uh, the, the logging industry and the dairy industry. And... Um, I learned really quickly that one of the best things uh, about being in a small town and a small community um, is that when stuff needs to be done, uh, people just get together and do it. And I think from that is what really born my um, interest in community, in politics, uh, in social service um, and public service. And uh, it also taught me a lot about diplomacy because um, I came from a family where um, my parents were environmentalists and so learning to kind of talk to those families whose parents were in the logging industry um, you know you had to find way other things to connect over and not be kind of driven by you know a, a, a divergence of, of, of your parents careers or, or, or where the income came from and um, I think small towns uh, can teach you a lot about uh, respecting people regardless of their differences. It's it's so interesting to hear you say that because we talk a lot at the moment about, you know, this concept of divergence and, and everybody, you know, being separated by something. I mean, today, you know, it's very much about the Ukraine and Russia um, or it could be about, you know, being vaccinated or not being vaccinated or, or whatever mm. it is. Can you think of a time where you really had to hone those skills and and where it was it enabled you to kind of change, I guess, a relationship or or just a connection with a person. Yeah. Look, I think, you know, since I came into politics and I I I came in quite young. I was the youngest woman elected and I came in with a whole lot of ideas and passion about the way I, you know, wanted to help the world and the issues that I'm passionate about. But I had to, of course, you kind of get thrown in. I was 25, 26. I had a baby on my hip at the time because I'd been pre-selected and elected at the same time as having my daughter, Cora, all a bit of a surprise and a whirlwind. And I had to learn that, 
everyone comes to politics, most people, because they actually want to do something to fix the world. They're passionate about their communities. And while we might not all have the same ideas about how things should be done or what the solutions are, most people come to it from the same point in, in, in their hearts and in their minds and, you know, everyone's, you know, wanting to, to do their best. I was given the immigration portfolio early on and that is very controversial, of course. Um, I was very passionate about looking after vulnerable people, particularly refugees. I've been watching what's going on in terms of Russia and Ukraine at the moment and just, you know, my heart goes out to all of those families who woke up only a few days ago realising that um, actually their world is not what they thought uh, and uh, now, you know, a lot of them fleeing and crossing, trying to get across the border. That to me and, and trying to communicate those struggles, those human instincts, uh, what makes us a family, those things are not unique to one group of people or another. Actually, they're, thing, they're values that we all hold. Um, they're human values. And so I've often had to kind of use storytelling and uh, personal stories to help connect with people that perhaps have a different point of view. And immigration portfolio is one. Um, climate, uh, the climate debate, of course, used to be very controversial. Nowadays, I, I feel like most people understand that pollution is an issue and we've got to deal with it because otherwise our kids are going to be left with a planet that's too hot to live in you know, and too dangerous. So I think the main thing is not to beat people up because they have a different idea of you, find a way to connect. And then part of the process of changing hearts and minds is also giving people a license to accept new information. I remember when I took on uh, the case relating to David Lionhelm, he was that former senator who had harassed me in the in the parliament. And when I stood up and first called that out, I had male members of of the parliament come up to me and really apologize that they'd never kind of stood up and spoken out about it before. And I remember thinking, oh, hang on, here's a moment where I, I could have just said, well, that's, well, thanks for nothing. Or I could hear them out. And what I heard really clearly was they didn't know what to do. They thought that, that I seemed to be handling it. Okay. They didn't want to kind of intervene because they didn't, you know, one bloke said to me, I, I didn't want to embarrass you anymore. I thought you had it under control. I'm really sorry. I wished I'd stood up and said something. That acknowledgement is actually more powerful than people who have just always held the same view all the time. And, and that's what change really is. It's interesting to hear you talk about that because I think that, you know, as a young woman coming into a leadership role at a similar age that you entered parliament, you know, there is this kind of concept that we've got this right like if you if you get to that level if you are that leader if if you're put in that position then you then you absolutely have the skills and the know-how and you're prepared for what is about to come and I think that that is absolutely untrue I think that what in many cases women are faced with as they walk through that door is nothing that you're necessarily prepared for and I think you know on International Women's Day the big thing right now is let's break the bias, but how do we prepare women better for mm. what is a time that, you know, unfortunately from what we've seen from you know, the federal parliament recently, it's not ready for equity. We're not there no. yet. We're absolutely mm. not yet there yet. I mean, what do we tell women to keep them coming and to keep them stepping up? Well, I think 
a couple of things. Firstly, you're right, we're nowhere near there. <laughs> um, there's so much that still needs improvement. But I can see positive change happening and I think that in and of itself what well, it gives me hope and I hope it gives other people hope as well because if we don't see change actually occurring, then you kind of wonder, oh, am I, you know, is this all worth it? Change is happening, but it will, but it's not inevitable and you have to be engaged. You've got to fight for it. You've got to pick those moments when it's the right time to stand up and say, no, I've had enough of this. <laughs> I think we do need more young women in leadership across, you know, all sectors and uh, women in general, but particularly young women. And I think one of the things that's really inspiring to me at the moment is seeing a number of young women stepping forward and um, saying their piece, whether that's Grace Tame and Brittany Higgins and Chanel Contos have all kind of got in there in the last 12 months and really charted a course for themselves or indeed somebody like uh, who I've gotten to know over the last year Christine Holgate who is you know a, a very senior woman in business who um, has, you know <laughs> been around a long time seen a lot of crap I'd imagine and finally went nah I'm not putting up with this anymore so that that in of itself is giving others inspiration. I think the main thing is when somebody does stand up and when they do or they step through that door and they take that opportunity, the main thing everybody else needs to do is to not let them stand there on their own. It takes a lot of effort to kind of put yourself out there as a leader and you need to know that You've got people backing you and will be there for, you know, in those moments that you stuff up as well or those moments you're just not sure and you need some reassurance uh, as a sounding board. I think what I've seen over the, over the years, and I felt this when I first came into politics, that I didn't know where to turn for the people who would be there for me if I was wavering or I'd made a mistake or I'd misjudged something. I felt the whole time I was kind of on edge about, you know, what happens if I stuff this up. I think those of us who have been through that now have a responsibility to be there to catch people and to help them. Yeah, absolutely. I and mean, I think that, you know, that is some of the difficulty because I think, you know, when you walk through that door, I think there's some expectation that, well, you know, now I've got to prove them wrong. Like I've got to get this right and I can't, you know, I can't be seen to be leaning on people or. We doing... tell ourselves that, right? Yeah, like, I think we tell ourselves to, that. We, we, we tell each other this, we tell ourselves this. Do you reckon blokes turn around and go, oh, no, nah, I'm never going to lean on anyone. I'm not going to do anything. This is all me. I mean, no one gets there on their own. And um, I think we can't be fooled into thinking that women have to do it on our own uh, as, an, as an individual without support, that you're isolated, that you have to be 110, 200% better than, you know, the last person, that everybody's waiting for you to fail. Men fail all the time. So let's give ourselves a break. Perhaps, though, we don't notice as much because we stand out when we do. Um, <laughs> yes. Because there's so few that's, of us up there. But, it, that's true. That's true. Yeah. Um, I wonder, you know, for me, I, I've been spending a bit of time kind of ruminating about this, particularly around International Women's Day. But 
I guess, and I'm sure you, well, I know you've experienced it. Coming into a leadership role as a young woman, there is unfortunately some level of objectification that occurs when it comes to your age, um, your sex, you know, all of those things. You know, there have been times where very well-respected colleagues of mine have pulled me aside and said, well, you know what people talk about, um, you know, what men talk about it, you know, late at night in bars when it comes to you, it's you've got very little to do with your qualifications or what you're doing or anything like that. Mm. I genuinely thought when I had a child that that would end. But as it turns out, the further <laughs> away from childbearing it doesn't, it actually just kind of comes back again, but then you have an additional mm. expectation where you're judged as a mother is this something that you have experienced or is it just just me? No, no, that's absolutely something that um, I think women, particularly those who, who step into leadership roles, but I think women in across lots of sectors um, are like that, and particularly if you start to build a bit of, you know, your work is based on uh, your uh, qualifications or your, you know, peer endorsement, uh, a public profile, that kind of, demeaning of, of of one's ability based on you know yes the looks the tone do you smile enough do you not um you know how quickly did you fall pregnant uh you know how quickly did you get yourself back in shape afterwards I mean these are all conversations and and comments that are made which just never occur or very very rarely and they don't dominate in the same way to undermine uh, the ability of men in leadership. I think this is still something when we talk about we've still got a long way to go, it's these types of issues that are continue uh, to undermine. And, of course, you know, my experience in the parliament, a lot of the harassment that I have now spoken out about but I didn't at the time um, for a long time because I was worried that there was a sense of, oh, she can't hack it. So I, I was, I just have to suffer this in silence and pretend it's not happening, ignore it. And a lot of it was that really sexualized bullying about my appearance, who I apparently was sleeping with, why I wasn't sleeping with anyone, what kind of mother I was, you know, who, who was I being a single mum bringing my, you know, kid to Canberra to do my job um there was a, a really kind of sexualized element to to the bullying and the harassment that that I received and I don't think that's unique to politics at all no it's absolutely not unique to politics and in fact um, I've had you know almost identical experiences in the sense that you know I've been questioned about whether it was appropriate for my child to be with a nanny while being in, in federal parliament doing my job, you know, advocating for retailers. I've been, you know, questioned about, you know, how much time I spend with my children, you know, amongst other things. It's certainly not something that's just unique, unfortunately, um, to politics at all. Can I ask, though, when you said the part about are they going to think I, I can't hack it, when you did speak out, did anyone say that you couldn't? You know, that was the most amazing part for me because I was so scared and I had been scared for a long time about talking about what was going on, the implications of it, knowing that calling it out would bring a focus to it, uh, that it would make me a bigger target. But I must say it's a really hard thing to believe when you're in the midst of it. But breaking my silence and calling it out was the most empowering thing I've ever done in my life. It 
changed the power dynamic. So it was actually in my hands now. I owned this. I wasn't going to be ashamed of it. I wasn't allowing this harassment to, to undermine me and to shame me. I actually owned it. Uh, and, you know, I, I shamed the shamers. And I think that people saw that. And I was inundated with support from everyday Australians, uh, women and men, so many decent men out there who were just shocked and horrified and or some who had seen it, as I was saying earlier, and were almost relieved that because I'd spoken about it, they could now talk about it too and say this wasn't on. I had a, um, you know, a flood of emails and letters from people who told me their own stories, so similar. Blokes who had written in saying they'd seen it happen to people in their workplace, you know, a woman who worked a few desks down at the office or someone who'd had it happen to their uh, daughter or someone who'd had it happen to their wife. I also received a, a letter from a guy who, after he'd heard me speak out and articulate what had happened, had recognised that he'd done this himself to, to somebody else that he'd worked that he'd worked with five years earlier. And he'd written to me and said, I've gotten in contact with her and I've apologised. Now, that is amazing. Mm. That, is, that is social change happening before your very eyes. And it's that type of empowerment that just made me realise that, oh, actually this was the right thing to do. Of course, there was the repercussions. Um, you know, I, um, you know, the, the, the slut shaming continued and I had to take it to court. In fact, we went all the way to the high court because he just couldn't accept that he was wrong. Uh, and I still won and I won all the way through. And there was the stress of that and the anxiety that comes with that and the, you know, that wasn't a small thing to do. That was a really difficult thing to do. And if it's difficult for me as a public figure, you know, I know that, you know, defamation is not something that is in the hands of regular people and regular women at all. So I was, you know, I was very privileged, but it was still a really hard thing to do. But despite all of that, overwhelmingly, people were supportive and backed me. And having lived that experience and all of that, would you do it again? Would you still choose <laughs> to serve? Yeah, um, yes, I would. I would because we need women there and we need opinionated women there and we need women from a diverse group of backgrounds to be there. One of the things that clearly hasn't shifted enough is uh, how we involve women from a more diverse cultural background um, into leadership positions and and to, into genuine leadership positions and to give them a voice in a lot of these conversations. You know, I would never I would never say don't do it because it is well and truly one of the the, the most important things if we're going to have a, have the cultural shift we need uh, if we want equality for women and equality for all, then you can't shy away from it. Yeah, I mean, that's that's absolutely the truth, isn't it? I mean, I think um, certainly reflecting on my own experience, I often think that if as a white middle-class woman this is my experience, you know, and it, it certainly hasn't been easy and it, it has been tough um, for various reasons and a lot of it in many cases, as you say, is about, you know, being afraid to have that voice and being afraid to say that's not okay, that's not appropriate, um, or even to tell your your story, um, 
if that's my experience, you know, I can't imagine what other inter-minority groups have, you know, particularly when it comes to representation. Do you think there is a solution around getting women more positions of leadership, whatever their background is? Do you think there is a solution around that? I mean, people obviously debate quotas amongst other things. It's, it's something that's huge. But if you look at Scandinavian countries, I mean, they're just kind of all over this in comparison to us. And they, they are. It works. They are. Yeah. Look, uh, I think quotas is a really important place to start. We need gender quotas on boards. Uh, we need reporting of that to be um, transparent. Uh, we need to be thinking about the the gender balance when we think about kind of senior management positions as well. So you know the next kind of level down from uh, company boards. How are we how are we actually ensuring that the people who are in charge of the day to day reflect the best skills and abilities of a company? And so often. Uh, you see women overlooked because yeah, a bloke's had the job and a bloke gives another bloke the next job. We need to kind of really be quite transparent about um, dealing with those biases. And we need quotas in uh, when it comes to representation and politics. Uh, we Simply leaving it to uh, it will happen over time and a kind of complacency, um, we're running out of time actually. We've got some really big bloody issues we've got to deal with as a community and we are running out of time. And when I look around the world at uh, those countries where you have women in leadership as prime ministers or presidents or uh, the head of international organisations, they are doing such a good job and uh, bringing a different perspective to whether it is the climate and environment crisis, whether it's the you know humanitarian crises, whether it's uh, how do we uh, financially and sustainably get out of this COVID uh, pandemic that we're in, um, as well as dealing with the health issues? Women bring a different perspective and it's time for our perspective to be front and centre because the way the world has been run uh, and the way governments have been running things for too long is not working. So let's put some women in charge and get the job done. That's only going to happen if we've got, uh, in, Australia, in the Australian context, if we actually have quotas. And obviously uh, the Liberal Party um, needs some quotas. I think um, all parties need to do better at getting women next um, level of, of leadership. Of course, you know, with that comes wanting to make sure there is a pathway and it comes back to that the question at the beginning really about how do we support people walking through that door because you can't just put a woman up there and then go okay job done that's it everything else can carry on as normal there needs to be a, a genuine commitment to supporting the success of of women in leadership and I think supporting their choice to go into leadership because, you know, if you look at all the studies, particularly around millennial women, it, it's the support in getting them to make the choice or saying, I am good enough to, you know, mm. do these things. How mm. did you make that decision? How did you decide to run and to get involved in politics? You know, was it about the team? Was it about the people behind you saying, you know, you can do this? It absolutely was about um, being encouraged and one of my mentors um, back then and, and still to this day is um, Bob Brown, the former leader of the Greens. But I, I met him 
very early on and he you know he saw that I had the potential to be involved in a in a bigger way and really encouraged me and I not not one day has gone by where I've thought oh if I had a question I needed or a doubt in my mind that I needed help with that he wouldn't be there and that's been really important it's something that I've then gone okay well how do I use my experience to help encourage other women to step forward and regardless of what political party they are in like I'm not really you know, I, I think we need more women in politics. Mm. Obviously, I love more progressive women in politics because I come from, you know, I, I think that the progressive policies are, are, are what we need. But I want genuine debate and I want to see every party progress and that means we need women from all sides. Yeah, I mean, I just feel like, you know, when you talk about politicians or parties needing to do better I feel like industry needs to do better just Mm. as much I mean in our industry we Mm. employ 1.2 million people 55 percent of them are women I think we've got less than eight percent at CEO level which is you know pretty telling and and we're not good we're not good at succession planning we're not good at getting them from shop floors into head offices and saying here are the skills this is what you need or even providing them with the support to make those decisions which include things like equal pay and assistance with childcare and you know other things that we know we know that they are going to need to move forward I think I think that's absolutely true and I think even daring to have that conversation is where things have to start right like the retail sector is predominantly women where, where is the pathway up to 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 ceo and leadership position uh, coming from and who who's getting out of the way to help that happen uh who's getting out of the way and who's getting behind a push to make mm. that happen i think that's a that there's some really important conversations that need to be happening and that's why what's happened the narrative of what's been going on um, out of canberra and in politics over the last few years is it's not just important for politics, it sets the tone for what should be expected uh, and what is needed uh, across the board and whether that's in industry or in kind of the, the rest of the public service or in uh, the non-government sector. It's important because it, it needs to set uh, the path and set that standard. I think for the retail sector, there is such an obvious opportunity right now for women in in your space to be backing each other and saying hang on a minute we have a we have the influence and the power right now um there is a moment that is going on and we can't afford to waste this and take the momentum there's a reason why the conversation of women and the treatment of women is is so high on people's radar right now we're leading into a federal election um in uh, a month or so's time um, women voters are going to be thinking about the power of their vote in a way that they've never thought about it before. This is all positive. And I'd say to the retail sector and anyone, you know, working or associated that be part of this momentum. Don't, don't, don't miss the boat on this one. We have time for one question, last question, and this is something that I ask everybody on this show. Um, what are you reading and what are you watching at the moment? Um, I've, uh, well, I just finished the, uh, the latest season of, you know, the new season of Sex and the City, actually. Oh, yes, yes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, as you I had to, yeah. you know, I, I had to do that. And I'm not, 
How did you feel about it? Oh, it's, it's I felt very conflicted. I felt yes. very conflicted. Um, it's not the same without Samantha. No. Um, it's and it, I think in some ways it just exposed how much you know one's own growth in the world has has gone. So it was a bit confronting in, in that sense. But you know, I I I used to be a big Sex and the City fan back in the beginning, so I felt like I had to do that. The other show that I, I've been uh, watching is Succession, oh, um, yes. of course, which is just you know the, the kind of intrigue and politics, and I'm obviously very interested in um, uh, the issue of media and the, the power of you know media in politics as well. So that's I've really enjoyed enjoyed that. Uh, reading at the moment, um, actually, I haven't started a new book for a while. The last book I read was actually Toxic, which is about salmon farming in Tasmania. Um, that's um, that that's shaken me a bit, actually, and we've got to do better in that space. So, mm. yes, oh, I do. I did try. I just remembered that I did try and pick up uh, Three Women. Have you read that? I haven't, no. Um, which is, uh, I tried to pick that up over summer and I just, I really wanted to get into it, but I kept being distracted. But that in and of itself is a story of, um, you know, three women from totally different worlds trying to navigate um, their way through this kind of cultural change of equality. So um, I think- Timely. Timely. Timely read, that's it. Well, thank you so much for your time. You have no idea how much I have enjoyed this conversation Um, and I just, I can't wait to see all the amazing things that you do. So thank you so much for being on our show. Um, Oh, it's been a pleasure. Well, we look forward to watching what happens next. Wonderful. Thank you, Dominique, and um, happy International Women's Day. Happy International Women's Day. Want to know more about the Australian retail industry? Visit nra.net.au for more insights just like these.